Well, good morning, Hallows Church, and guests who are tuning in with us this morning. I'm so glad that you have decided to spend this time with us. My name is Andrew. I serve as one of the pastors here with our faith family, and I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures today. So if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to grab those and turn them open to 1 Peter chapter 3. Find your way to the passage that was just read so well for us a moment ago. Recently, I watched a TV show titled Cobra Kai, and Cobra Kai continues the epic saga between Danny LaRusso's Miyagi Do- Dojo and, and Johnny Lawrence's Cobra Kai Dojo, a, a conflict that was birthed in the 1984 film The Karate Kid. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with that film. There's a lot of iconic statements and scenes from that movie. You have wax on, wax off. You have paint the fence. You have a crazy, a crazy crane kick of sorts at the end and all sorts of other fun, memorable moments. Well, what started out as just a beef between two high schoolers who shared the same crush on a girl, it, it has ballooned into this decades-long saga between these two rivals. And the show, Cobra Kai, is told from the perspective primarily of, of Johnny Lawrence and the Cobra Kai Dojo. As he has reopened it, and he is now teaching young kids karate again, and he's actually bringing into their lives the creed of conduct that he was taught when he was a teenager. And so he's reinforcing these principles and this particular creed of conduct to a next and a new generation. And this creed would be cited over and over again by participants in his dojo, as well as, as, well as painted on the wall of the refurbished space. And it's basically made up of three statements, strike first, strike hard, no mercy. That's the Cobra Kai Code of Conduct. Now, it's not a particularly good creed. It's not really one we want to live by, but it is the one that would come to characterize all who would identify with and belong to that particular community. Well, the passage before us today, it it may be described as giving us the church's creed of conduct. By laying out for us the way of life that should come to characterize every single person who identifies with and belongs to the church. And it is far more compelling and far more attractive than strike first, strike hard, no mercy. See, in this passage, Peter's basically summarizing a section of his letter where he's been describing how Christians should relate to different sectors of society how Christians should relate to government, how we should relate to work and unjust masters and bosses and authorities, as well as how, we should, how, how husbands and wives should relate to each other. And, and now he comes to this summary statement, this summary moment where he says, finally, all of you, that is to say every gospel-believing person who is a part of the church, every gospel-believing person should relate to one another inside the church as well as to those who may be hostile to the church, outside of the church. He's saying, this is how you should conduct yourselves. This is how you should relate to one another and to those outside the family of faith. He says, I want you to be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another and be compassionate and humble. Not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called for this, so that you may inherit a blessing. For the one who wants to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. 
and let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. Now, church historians and theologians, they have examined the early church in the first few centuries of her existence. And they have identified five characteristics that uh, marked out the church in society and that contributed to her deep impact and her rapid growth and rise in the world in a very short amount of time. These five characteristics included one, the fact that the church was a multi-ethnic community that the church was made up of a diverse group of people, different types of people who all found unity in Christ. They found common ground with Jesus. That was appealing to the world around them. That was attractive to the divided and the fractured cultures and subcultures that existed in the world that they inhabited. But then the second dynamic was that the church cared for the poor and the marginalized. The church shared practical concern for those who were hurting in the world, and they sought to take care of them. But then the third dynamic was that the church was anti-abortion and infanticide, that the church advocated for babies to be kept and not discarded. And so the church would actively seek to take in discarded babies and to welcome in discarded children to their community and to raise them and to take care of them as their own. But then the fourth marker of the church in the, in the early days was that they had a holy sexual ethic, a sexual ethic that stood in stark contrast to the sexual fluidity and promiscuity that was quite common in the Greco-Roman world. So they were marked out by that. Now you think about those four traits, they tend to fall in a couple of categories that, that are familiar to us. Two of them sound very liberal, right? The idea of multi-ethnic diversity, the idea of... Uh, and then the idea of caring for the poor and the marginalized, that sounds kind of to fall on the liberal side of things of our culture. But then two of them found, seem to fall on the conservative side of our society. Anti-abortion and infanticide. The idea of, of having a holy sexual ethic that is distinct from the society and the culture surrounding us. So, so two of them may be described as liberal traits and two of them may be described as culture as conservative traits. Now, this is why when the church decides to be the church and Christians decide to be Christian, this is why churches and Christians should not fall in squarely into one of the two political categories that are presented to us in our country and in our society. Christians do not fit squarely in either political party there are things about us that should cause us to, to look liberal. There are things about us that should cause us to look conservative. And we don't have to pick and choose between these dynamics, and we shouldn't be forced to by our society and our political environment. Instead, we commit to the gospel. We commit to the creed of conduct that is laid out for us in the scriptures, that is energized within us by the gospel. And we give ourselves to that. And whatever label people give us, we ignore them and we follow Jesus. And that brings me to the fifth characteristic. Because the fifth marker is one that is actually touted in this text. And it is one that doesn't really characterize any political party today. 
It is one that doesn't really mark any culture or subculture in our context in this given, in this moment. And that is the early church loved all people, including her enemies. That the church loved all people, including her enemies. See, the church put a stop to the vengeance and retaliation that was so common in the first century. The church went the way of Jesus by actively seeking to bless those who were persecuting her. And this caused them to live as strangers and exiles. This caused them to be sinners of a different sort because they loved in a radically different kind of way. There's a church historian by the name of Tertullian, or a church father named Tertullian, who describes a moment when the Roman government grew suspicious of the church because the church was growing so fast and her influence was widening so rapidly. And so the Roman government grew suspicious of this and began to send spies into their worship gatherings. And one of these spies reported back to their supervisors and said this about the early church. These Christians are very strange people. They meet in an empty room to worship. They have no image. They speak of one by the name of Jesus who is absent, but they seem to be expecting him to show up at any moment. My, how they love him and how they love one another. Now, don't you want the same to be said of us? Don't you want the same to be said of you and me? My, how they love Jesus and how they love one another. That love would live at the center of our creed of conduct. Now, I use that phrase intentionally, the phrase creed of conduct, because our conduct as Christians, it stems from our faith in Christ. It is our belief, our creed in the gospel that energizes and drives our behavior. It is what determines the way we live in the world that is as we move towards the world that is to come. Now, keep in mind when Peter writes this letter, whenever he opened it, he anchored everything that he tells the church to do in this letter in the fact that they have been swept up in the gospel, that they have been given new life by grace through faith in Jesus. Listen to what he says. He reminds him, he reminds his gospel-believing readers, and he reminds you and I today that, that it is because of God's great mercy that we have been given new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Saying that this new birth has brought us into a new family. And as we belong to this new family, we now have a new way of life, a new creed of conduct that should characterize the way we live in the here and now. A creed of conduct that is far more attractive and far more compelling than Cobra Kai this is what Jesus said would happen in John chapter 13, verse 34. I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciple if you love one another. And elsewhere, Jesus said, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, when you look closely at verse 8, it seems that this verse contains a literary device known as a chiasm. Now, a chiasm was a very popular way that writers like to structure sentences and paragraphs and, and sections and maybe even the entirety of certain books. And, and what, the, what a chiasm does is it, it calls attention to the heart of the matter that 
a writer or an author is trying to communicate. And it seems that there may be one found here in verse 8. You might think of it like a dartboard where you have concentric circles. And on the outer ring, you have a couple of attitudes. You have the attitude of being like-minded and and being uh, humble. But then you move in a ring, and there you have a couple of affections like sympathy and compassion. And then you move one more ring to the center, and you get to the bullseye. You get to the heart of the matter. You get to this concept of brotherly love. And as we look at this verse that way, we begin to see that love lives at the center of the church's creed of conduct. And so what I want to do in this moment is I want to show you that love expresses itself in five ways in this text. And then I want to give you two core beliefs that energizes this kind of love in our lives and in our church. First, let's take the attitudes on the outer ring of of the dartboard, on on the outer ring of the concentric circles. First, there's the attitude of being like-minded. Being like-minded. You see, in the church, we embrace the attitude that says we are in this thing together. That we are in this thing together. And the phrase like-minded, it it speaks to the idea of moving in the same direction. That we are united and we are moving in the same direction together. This was very important to Jesus. It's one of the things that he prayed for just before he was arrested and, and taken to the cross. In John chapter 17, verse 11, Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one, so that they might be united. Now, what does it mean for us to move in the same direction together, to have that attitude in the church? Well, I think one, it means that we move in the same upward direction. We move in the same upward direction in the, in the sense that we worship the same God. We worship the same God who, who is holy, who is righteous, who is loving, who is just, who is faithful, who is eternal, who is sovereign, who is glorious, who is good. We worship the God who created all things and who, will, who reigns and rules over all things. We worship the God who reveals himself to us in the Bible. We move in the same upward direction because we worship the same God, but we also move in the same internal direction, that we fellowship with one another. We share life together, and our fellowship is not dependent upon things like how we dress or how we vote or how we think the pandemic should be handled, masks or no masks or whatever the case may be, that Our fellowship is not dependent on the fact that we root for the same sports teams or share the same hobbies or listen to the same kinds of music. No, our fellowship with one another, moving in the same inward direction, is dependent upon the fact that we share the same salvation, that we've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus, that we were all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God, but God in his grace has called us to himself and brought us into his family. And we are a part of the church, not because we deserve it, not because we earned it. We are a part of the church because God has been gracious to each and every one of us. And so we fellowship with one another because of Jesus, because we share the same salvation. So we move in the same upward direction and worship We move in the same inward direction in salvation. But then third, we also move in the same outward direction. 
That as we follow Jesus together, as we're moving in the same direction, we recognize that Jesus has commissioned you and me to make disciples of all nations. That we are his ambassadors. We have been entrusted by God to make Jesus known to the world around us. So we share the gospel with people. We show the gospel to people. We live, love, serve others in such a way that magnifies Jesus, that showcases Jesus, that lifts Jesus up so that the Father might draw people to himself. So we move in the same outward direction because we share the same mission. We are like-minded in our worship. We are like-minded in our salvation, and we are like-minded in our mission. Now, we are diverse in many ways. We hold different opinions on different on many things, some of which are important, some of which are more important than others, but ultimately, we are like-minded in that which matters most. We are like-minded, moving in the same direction in our worship, in our salvation, and in our mission. But then you look at the second attitude here, the second attitude mentioned there at the end of verse 8, moving from the outside in, you have the word humility. You see, an attitude of humility, it removes any threat of competition that might swell up between us and the church. That humility is this incredible attitude that prevents you and me from thinking that we are superior to one another or inferior to each other. That humility says that we all stand on equal ground, shoulder to shoulder, looking each other in the eye and relating to one another on that basis. Now, when Peter uses this term, it was probably surprising to many readers, particularly those who might have heard about this, who weren't Christians, who did not believe the gospel. Because in the Greco-Roman world, the word humility was associated with weakness. It was a vice, not a virtue. It wasn't something people wanted to be described as. When you called somebody humble, you were actually insulting them in the Greco-Roman world. But yet here we find humility as being a keynote attitude that marked out Jesus, who in Philippians chapter 2, we are told to have the same attitude as Christ, who though he was in the very form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. He, took, he was so secure in who he was before his heavenly father that he became a servant. And he humbled himself to serve you and me by living the life that we could not live and dying the death that we deserved to die. Humility characterized the attitude of Jesus. And humility now marks our attitude as well. Now, when you think about that word being used as an insult... And it was often hurled in the church's direction. And those who would hurl this word in the church's direction, they thought they were scoring points. They thought they were winning arguments. They thought they were putting the church down. But the thing about humility, that true gospel-rooted humility, it is so powerful because it can clothe a person in a coat of armor that is so strong that insults and, and slanderous statements, they, they cannot penetrate They cannot make an impact. That's why being humble is one of the most secure ways to be in the world. Because when we are humble before God and before human beings, insults and slanderous statements, they can't hit us. They just kind of fall to the wayside. Because a truly humble person isn't really governed by what other people think. Isn't really governed by other people's assessment 
A truly humble person lives in light of what God says about them. And God says to you and to me that he loves us, that we are secure, that we are his, that we have a hopeful future. And we put our faith in this God and we allow humility to characterize our attitude. And as we are humble people, we should feel no impulse to defend ourselves in the face of insults or to defend ourselves in the face of personal slights or whatever the case may be. But then you move in to the second ring and you have a couple of affections, a couple of traits that, that are emotional terms that, that speak to how we feel about certain things or about certain people. The first word you find there is the word sympathy. Now, the word sympathy literally means to feel together. It means to have another person's hurts in your heart. That's what sympathy is and sympathy does. Now, part of the reason why this doesn't happen as often as we would like and sympathy may be lacking in our lives is because many of us, quite frankly, are too preoccupied with ourselves to be sympathetic. Self-centeredness and sympathy cannot occupy the same space at the same time. See, sympathy involves getting underneath the burdens of others. It involves getting underneath the hurts and the hardships of other people. And this is basic to what it means to belong to the church. You see this in multiple passages in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26. So if one member suffers... All the members suffer with it. But then you have Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3. Remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them and the mistreated as though you were in prison with them and mistreated as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. So he's saying, put yourself in the shoes of those who are hurting. That's how sympathy grows. Consider their hurts and take their hurts into your heart And what may start off as a cognitive thing of just having the mental discipline to put yourself in the shoes of those who are hurting, that mental discipline can give way to an emotional experience as you begin to sympathize with others as you think deeply about the situations that they are enduring. Because sympathy is one of those affections that must be learned as we gain more information and a heightened awareness of what other people are experiencing and what other people may be suffering. This is why as Christians, we want to learn about those who are hurting. We want to learn about other people's experiences and we want to learn not because we're trying to gain a better understanding per se. We want to learn because we want to cultivate sympathy. Sympathy comes from Awareness. It comes from learning. This is why when you think about the racial strife and the racial struggles that exist in our society that at times spills over into the life of the church, members of the ethnic majority should listen and learn from those who make up the ethnic minority and to learn from their experiences, not so that they can grow in knowledge, but so that they, they can grow in sympathy so that they can share together with those who are hurting, so that they can take the hurts of others into their heart. This is what makes the church such a unique people. We have an affection known as sympathy operating in our lives, being cultivated in our souls. But then the second affection there is captured in the word compassionate. Now, the word compassionate is difficult to translate. 
It's hard to translate because it, it literally means to have good bowels, that is good guts. And the idea is that in antiquity, the, the deepest emotions happened on the, on the gut level. And we're, we're familiar with this because we have phrases and, and thoughts that kind of reinforce this idea. So that if you were uh, making a decision and someone asks you, well, what does your gut say? What does your gut tell you about what you should do? How are you feeling about this decision? We also speak of things like intestinal fortitude, that, that gut resolve to, to do something and to, to make a decision in a certain direction. There are some people who, if you ask them to stand in front of a group of people and to speak, they're going to feel that anxiety. They're going to feel that, those nerves in the gut, in the stomach. Some people vomit before they stand to do something like that. I remember when God first called me to preach, I carried that anxiety in my gut because I was so, it was something that I wasn't naturally inclined towards doing, standing in front of people and speaking, and I felt it in my stomach. You see, the, the gut, or that's the idea, that our deepest emotions hit us in the gut. But when you think about the word compassionate, we're talking about good bowels. We're talking about good emotions. We're talking about feeling the right things deeply. Feeling the right things in the deep places of who we are. Specifically, we're talking about being tenderhearted or showing a tenderhearted concern for those around us. Now, much like sympathy can be eclipsed by self-centeredness, having good bowels can often be eclipsed by what might be described as irritable bowel syndrome. That at times we are too irritable to be compassionate. We are too bitter to be compassionate. We are too angry to be compassionate. We don't want to show tender-hearted concern for others, especially those who might hurt us. And so what we need from the gospel, what we need from God is for Gospel realities, not just to enter our head and affect our attitudes. We, we need gospel realities to sink into our bowels, into our guts, into the deep places of who we are. So that both our attitudes and our affections are in sync with gospel realities. Now, one of the unique things about the word compassionate in the Greco-Roman world is that it was a term used to describe familial relationships. It was a word that was expected of how families should relate to each other and treat one another. And so Peter's use of this is just another reminder that we belong to a new family, that the church isn't like family, the church is family that is now bound together by the blood of Jesus. And so we show a tender-hearted concern for one another, and, and that tender-hearted concern for one another, yes, it spills over into the tender-hearted concern we show those who may not belong to our community here, who may revile our community or whatever the case may be. And that brings us to what lives at the center of the church's creed of conduct. You find the bullseye there with the, with the words brotherly love. That being like-minded and humble, sympathetic and compassionate, this cultivates within us brotherly, familial love. It makes us a loving family that sticks together through thick and thin. Belonging to the church is a big deal. We are committing to one another like as family. Now, think with me about that chiastic, chiastic structure once again in verse 8. This chiastic structure that 
that works from the outside in. You have the attitudes, humility, like-mindedness, preceding the affections, sympathy, and compassion. And then it moves to the core. It moves to the center. It moves to this idea of love, of brotherly love. And what you begin to see there is how the gospel transforms our lives. That we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. We are transformed by putting on the mind of Christ. We are transformed by taking our thoughts captive. We are transformed by checking our attitudes. We are transformed by committing to being sober-minded. So we learn to think differently. And when we begin to think differently, that, that influences and gives shape to our affections. It gives shape to our emotional experiences. This is one of the reasons why I'm favorable to the techniques of cognitive behavioral therapy. Because cognitive behavioral therapy recognizes the connection between our thinking and our feeling. And they recognize how God has kind of wired the human condition and how, how we operate as human beings. And negative emotions are often fueled by negative thought patterns. And so CBT often teaches you to, to check how you're thinking and to replace negative thoughts with true thoughts, to avoid distorted thoughts. And, and there's a sense in which we would take the gospel and bring it to bear on that same process. Now, in and of itself, cognitive behavioral therapy falls short of the glory for which humans were created. It can't get us there. To get there, we must bring the gospel to bear. The gospel must inform how we are thinking about all things. And as we learn to think differently, then our emotions and our affections begin to fall in better, more healthier places. And when that happens, things really begin to change. When that happens, we begin to grow into the image of Christ, which is what it means to be truly and fully human as we work from, the attitude, from our attitude to our affections to the focal point of brotherly, familial, Christ-like love. Now, Apart from the power of the gospel, apart from the gospel being taken in and thought through and then turned out, apart from that process happening, we cannot carry this creed of conduct forward, especially when we consider what Peter says next in verse 9. He goes on to say, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. Now notice the standard he's putting forth there. He's not simply telling us to not yell back when somebody yells at us. He's not simply telling us not to hit back when somebody hits us. He's not simply telling us don't fight back when somebody fights us. What he is saying is to bless back. That we are to bless back. This is what Jesus taught Peter and the rest of the disciples in Luke chapter 6. He said, love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone hits you on the cheek, after the other also. Offer the other cheek also. And if anyone takes away your coat, don't hold back your shirt either. <laughs> Are you ready to sign up for that way of life? Well, if you're a gospel-believing person, you don't have a choice. You already have for this is the creed of conduct we are called to carry out together. 
But we don't fight back. We bless back. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, see to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. You know, as Christians, we must avoid getting into a a volleyball match with other people, a verbal, emotional conflict or sparring match with others where the, vo- where the ball is just kind of volleyed back and forth. We, we don't want to volley insults. We don't want to volley slanderous statements. We don't want to volley conflict. Instead, we just want to listen to the gospel that calls us to let the ball hit the ground. So if someone hits the ball in our direction, we don't, we don't hit it back. We just let it fall. Now, they may score a point, so to speak, but, but by God's grace, we're going to win in the end. So we don't have to engage the game. We can let the ball fall. Romans chapter 12. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. You know, there was a gospel-believing soldier once living in the barracks with his unit. And each night before he would go to bed, he would read the Bible and pray. And there were members of his unit across the aisle from him who would mock him every night, who would ridicule him every night, who would insult him every night. And then there was one evening when he was beginning to read the Bible and to pray, going through his routine, when a pair of muddy boots hit him in the head as a soldier from the other aisle just tossed them in his direction. The next morning, the the hostile soldier found his boots at the foot of his bed, and they were cleaned, and they were polished, and they were ready for inspection the next morning. And over time, several soldiers from that unit eventually came to faith in Christ due to the, the inner strength of the one who did not fight back, who did not yell back, who did not throw back, who did not hit the volleyball back, but the inner strength of a gospel-believing soldier who decided to bless back. You see, we love not only one another, but we love also our enemies. We bless not just the people who are nice to us and who are kind to us. We bless those who are mean to us, who are rude to us. We don't fight back, we bless back. How are you doing with that? Christian, are you loving your enemies? Do your social media posts agree with you? What do your social media posts say about your ability right now to love your enemies, to love those who you don't agree with about certain things going on in society? Well, there are two core beliefs that energize this strange and exilic way of life. Two core beliefs that turn us into sinners of a different sort who live by this otherworldly creed of conduct, of being like-minded and humble, of being sympathetic and compassionate, of being marked by brotherly, familial love. A a way of life that says, I'm not going to retaliate, I'm going to bless. There are two core beliefs that kind of sit at the heart of this, that drive and energize you and me in this direction. First, as followers of Jesus, we believe that God speaks to us in the Scriptures. This is where Peter goes. As Peter's kind of laying out this creed of conduct for Christians to follow, he then quotes Psalm 34. 
He quotes God's word, citing Psalm 34 to reinforce this creed of conduct in the church. You see, Peter knew what you and I should know today is that God's written word governs our way of life. That the Bible is our authority. It tells us how to live and how to love and how to serve. As we see Christ in its pages, we discover what it means to be fully and truly human. As we are aligning our lives up with what God's word tells us about how we should live, we find ourselves living what's called the good life. The good life that's referred to there in in verse 10. The loving life and seeing good days. Now, apart from such divine revelation, apart from the scriptures, you and I would just live in an incessant state of self-justification and retaliation. We would be locked in volleyball games all the time, never allowing the ball to hit the ground, never, never, never allowing those conflicts to end, running ourselves ragged, trying to keep it in the air, forgiveness and reconciliation just eluding us and escaping us and leaving us miserable leaving us torn apart. But with this divine revelation, with God speaking to us through the scriptures, we learn God's way, that God's way is the better way, that God's way says don't retaliate, don't pay evil for evil, insult for insult. Instead, bless those who hate you. Bless those who mistreat you. Bless those who are rude to you. And then the second energizing belief that allows this, that causes this creed of conduct to be carried out in our lives is the fact that we believe that God calls us not simply to treat people as we would like to be treated. That's what's called the golden rule. But God actually calls us to something better so that as followers of Jesus, we don't just live by the golden rule, which every child is taught at some point in time in their lives. They are taught to treat others the way they want to be treated. But God calls us to a higher standard, a much better way that I would call the the gospel rule. You see, the gospel rule says, don't just treat people how you want to be treated. The gospel rule declares, treat people how God in Christ has treated you. And God in Christ has forgiven you. He has blessed you even though you didn't deserve it. He has forgiven you and blessed you even though you were rude to him in your sin. Even though you rebelled against him and you insulted him and you did evil things and had evil thoughts. God blessed you in that moment. That's the gospel rule. God, you and I treating people as God in Christ has treated us. This is what it means to forgive as we have been forgiven. This is what it means to bless back. For when Jesus was insulted and assaulted on the cross, he did not pay back, he blessed back. He did not return evil for evil, but overcame sin with grace. Romans chapter 5, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person. Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the gospel rule. The gospel rule, this this belief that says God has treated us far better than we deserve and we treat others far better than they may deserve as well. 
treating others not simply how we would like to be treated, but treating others the way God in Christ has treated us. The gospel rule ultimately is the church's creed of conduct. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to take the gospel in this morning, to think the gospel through, and to turn the gospel out as we conduct ourselves according to your word, living the way of life that you have called us to live in Christ. God, we cannot do it on our own. Would you give us grace? Would you empower us? Would you fill us with your spirit? Would you energize us by your word and by your gospel? All in Jesus' name, amen.